The tables are turned a bit in this episode of the Vet Podcast. Someone else is asking the questions. Alex Avery is a veterinarian in the neighbouring practice to my old one. In a town the size of ours, about 30,000 people, what's the chances of us both being veterinary podcasters? Alex produces a podcast named Call the Vet, which is well worth listening to. And he approached me to have a chat for his podcast. So of course, I said yes, and then I flogged it. So, Alex and I discuss how veterinary practice has changed over the years, how treatments have improved, why vets aren't really expensive, vet-client relationships, but not the way you're thinking, client expectations, and the sad state of mental health of vets. Are you a veterinarian dreaming about working down under in New Zealand? If so, I'd love to help you make that dream come true. Hi, I'm Julie South of VetStaff. VetStaff is New Zealand's only recruitment agency specialising in the Kiwi veterinary sector. We can help you find your dream job down under, from short-term locum assignments through to permanent employment and residency. Because we know God's own Aotearoa New Zealand like the back of our hands, we can match your career aspirations with a clinic that'll suit you best. Whether you're planning to work here for a few months or forever. If it's got anything to do with working in a vet clinic in New Zealand, we can help. Vetstaff.co.nz You are listening to The Vet Podcast, presented by veterinarian Dr Brian Greger from New Zealand. Join us as we discuss pet health issues from around the world. Brian, welcome to the show. I'm really excited for our conversation today and, you know, start off by saying that it's amazing that we live in this kind of rural New Zealand community and we've got two podcasters in the same small town. So we'll touch on your podcast a little bit, but I'd love to, you know, hear just a little bit of a background of kind of your life as a veterinarian. Okay, well, I'm a little bit older than you. New Zealand trained at Massey University, a 1982 graduate. So I'm now retired a year and a half ago now, just pre-COVID. I've sort of been living the life in isolation, which has been quite nice. So I qualified in 82, started work in 83, originally worked in a small animal practice in Christchurch. I was never going to be a small animal vet. I was only ever going to be a cow vet the dairy cow vet. My interview was quite interesting with old Cam Purdy, the old original practice owner, the old doyen of small animal medicine in Christchurch, where I remember he gave me a ring saying, do you want to work for us as well? Not really, but I will if I have to work for him for a few months. And then I went from there up to what I thought was my dream job, open Aki in the Taranaki as a truly mixed practitioner, mainly dairy practice, but I was doing everything, which is where I got my real interest in small animal medicine. Came down with the chance to open up a clinic in our town now in Timaru in South Canterbury of New Zealand, which is the South Island of New Zealand. And that was 1986. And much like you guys have just done after a few years, I built, well, we built a nice new big flash clinic. And I was there from 86 until I retired a year and a half ago. The older I got, the more I got knocked around from work from cattle and horses and skiing and rugby and motocross and (laughs) decided to park up behind a consult table and concentrated mainly in medicine for the last five or 10 years and um, pulled the plug and continued on with my podcasting. 
Yeah, fantastic. You know, that amazing career that you've had is kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today, because you were able to, you know, be a real part of the community and you developed incredibly strong bonds with your clients. I mean, it was always a case of, you know, we worked in, you know, in adjacent clinics and it was always, oh, I, you know, I normally go and see Brian, um, not I normally go and see, you know, the the business. So it was that relationship that you had with them, which is really important and really highly valuable. And we'll kind of come on to that in a little bit. But, you know, in that time that you were in clinical practice, I imagine you've seen a, a massive change in the the type of vetting that we're doing on a daily basis. Oh, absolutely hugely. And I mean, there was even a change in the kind of vetting that was going on from when I qualified in our state-of-the-art small animal practice in Christchurch, went to a rural practice in the North Island. I can think of the drugs that we had. I mean, our drug cabinet had, you know, maybe two or three different antibiotics, lots of sulfur drugs, no such thing as non-steroidals over and above. Oh, I've forgotten the name ago. That's not just a drug that's not available now. <laughs> One of these real yeah. old-fashioned strip the, line, strip the lining out of your stomach kind of anti-inflammatories, a little bit of eye drop and a heck of a lot of cortisone. That was our, our medication. And if you couldn't fix it with antibiotics and cortisone, probably wasn't going to come right. But, you know, just from there to where practice was, when I left it with all the machines that we had parked up there and the availability over and above that to all the referral clinics, which were never available back in the day. It's a totally different world now than it was when I started. Yeah, it's funny when you say that, the antibiotic and the cortisone. So when I saw um, saw practice, so this is still, this would be, oh, I don't know, going back 2003 or four. the clinic that I saw was a real, I look back and think of it as a real James Herriot practice, but pretty much everything walked out the door with a shot of Betamox, which is a long-acting antibiotic, and a shot of steroid, which was mixed in the same syringe and administered in the same injection. And, you know, that's just what was done even MRIs, CT scans, they weren't available outside of the major universities and referral centres weren't, you know, weren't a thing. That's in the UK, which maybe people would think was, you know, a little bit further ahead, but you don't have to go back that far to think of all these things. So with that in mind, you know, what's the obvious impact on the health of our pets is that we're able to do an awful lot more, but that comes with kind of a cost and as well, higher expectations from the client as well. You know, I certainly find that. Yeah, I think that's it exactly. And I mean, if you just even look at the health statistics of cats, I remember, don't even know how long ago it was, maybe 15 years, 20 years ago, one of the cat food companies had a competition for the oldest cat on veterinary records in New Zealand. And the oldest cat was 20. Part of that was a reflection, I think, of probably back in the day, the records were all on paper and weren't that flash. But if you have a look at your records and our old records, I would imagine you'd probably have 30 or 40 cats over 20 on your records and you're probably the old cats are pushing out to 22 or 23 or 24 now. So that I'm sure is a reflection on the increase in healthcare that these animals are getting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, We're, we know so much more about them as well. And, you know, one of the big part of being a vet is to do your continued professional development, try and stay up to date, which, to be honest, can be a real challenge if you're trying to stay up to date in every single area, because the amount of progress has been huge. From a veterinary point of view, you know, that's kind of that's as a veterinarian, that's the difference that there's been. But also the other staff that are involved with our pets care has, has also developed to a, a pretty rapid rate as well. It's continuing to develop too. I've I think, again, when I started, 
we had a couple of vet nurses working for us, but they weren't qualified vet nurses. They were really, really good, but they were probably glorified kennel handlers. And I'm just hoping that Karen isn't listening to this now, but you know, they were really just glorified kennel handlers. Whereas now, if you look at it, we have got in, in New Zealand, we have got the, I shouldn't say bog standard vet nurse, but because, you know, I don't mean that to be demeaning, but, you know, you've got the entry level vet nurses who have got their qualifications, but they're moving up there to the diploma in veterinary nursing and then the the Bachelor of Veterinary Technology, yeah. I think they call it, don't they? Yeah. And yeah. if you look at the standard of the nursing coming out of the UK, it's on a par with human nursing, with what's required and the knowledge which in a lot of ways actually keeps the vets honest as well because we know that we have actually got, it's almost like somebody giving a second opinion every time we do something, which is terrific. It's really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. They, um, you know, and I think it's good to work in an environment where they're not scared to kind of pipe up and say, oh, hang on a minute, should we be doing this? Or have you thought about doing it this way? I think that's good. I, I love that kind of collegial aspect of it. And you're right, in the UK, you know, I do think the nurses level is a step up as a general rule from New Zealand. And then in the mm, States, yeah. it, it's that again. And certainly yeah. some of these veterinary technicians in the States, I think are at another level again. So with all of that kind of teamwork that goes into care now, the inevitable conversation then moves to cost because living in the online world, as an, I'm sure you're aware, it's one of the big criticisms is the cost of veterinary care is so much, but there's a reason why it has increased over the years to what it is now, isn't it? Oh, exactly. And I mean, running a veterinary practice for a number of years, I can tell you that the economics are pretty tight. You get it wrong, not very much, and there's nothing left and you might as well shut up shop. So, you know, it's, I think people have to realise there's a couple of things going on here. Primarily, vets go to work to save animals. That's what we're going to work for. But in saying that, if the vet practice isn't keeping its head above water, we're not going to be there and we're not going to be able to save the animals. So, you know, there, there's all the stuff that goes on under it. But the bottom line is that veterinary practices have to at least break even in yeah. order to keep supplying the service. And then yeah. you've got all of the horrendous expenses coming in under that. One of the big issues I used to hear was, goodness, I go to the doctor and it was only half the price of what you're charging. Now, I'm not sure how medical fees around the rest of the world go, but here in New Zealand, the government subsidises the general practitioners and the surgeons and whoever else to a huge extent. So what people are getting charged at the doctors isn't what the doctor is making out of the visit. It's what, it's the residue when the subsidies go in. So that was one of the hardest things that we used to have to deal with. And I'm sure you're still hearing it now. Yeah. I mean, we certainly hear that now and, and the same with the dental work that we do. You know, we have the added difficulty, I guess, with our dentistry that we need to anesthetize our patients, which adds a huge increase in complexity to, you know, when you compare it to what we do when we just just sit in a chair and open our mouths. But we had exactly the same problem in the UK with the NHS, you know, which is an amazing, a phenomenal institution, but people have absolutely no idea 
what the cost of care they're receiving is. I imagine maybe in the States, people are a bit more aware with it, more of an insurance model and private healthcare being normal. But yeah, that's a really big thing. And I guess the other thing that I'd like to point out is that actually the given that we've just discussed how much better qualified our nurses are and are becoming, their salaries often haven't really kept up with the level of skill that they're bringing to the table. Oh, exactly. When you have a look at what the senior vet nurses are getting paid and look at the equivalent employment of what jobs other people are working at, the vet nurses very, very poorly paid, especially for the responsibility that they take on. You know, as vets, we tend to put a lot of faith in their abilities because it's them that are doing the anaesthetic monitoring and it's them that are doing the post-op monitoring and it's them that are doing the discharge consults and all of those sort of things. So they are working at a very, very high level. Yeah. So I think people can be, you know, I don't want to turn it into turn this into a rant about how, you know, an amazing value it is, which it is. And, and you know, but we can bang on that drum for a long time. So there's that aspect. And, and I think the more that people work with us as individuals, they maybe appreciate the more they engage in veterinary care. And maybe they've had a lot of people have had their own experience with the health system. And actually, I, I get it after hours, for example, a lot of the time go, wow, you know, it's amazing that you could see us so quickly. Or I can say to people, well, I'll have those test results back later today or tomorrow. And people are flabbergasted because in the human system, it takes three weeks to get uh, you know the results back. Then they have to wait another couple of weeks to get the consultation with the specialist to then have that delivered. So you know, with that in mind and talking about the relationship being important, kind of from a veterinary point of view, why do you feel it's important that you kind of trust the clients as much as they trust what you're telling them? I think you almost have to put I'm going to put it back to you. You ring up to make a doctor's appointment and your doctor isn't there and you're going to get a locum. What's your first feeling? They know what they're doing, don't you? And you hope that they're experienced and you hope that they're personable and that you'll get on with them, really. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're a wee bit more forgiving than me. I I tend to put the consultation on hold and wait till the doctor's back because I'm quite old school as far as what I think that the client-vet relationship should be. I'm a great believer in the patients or the clients having their own vet in the clinic. The number of times that we used to get complaints that, oh, I see a different vet every time. There's a few different things that are involved in there. The first one is that you do, as a veterinarian, you do get a rapport with the client, a personable rapport. And for a straight cynical point of view, if you have got a rapport with the client, they are going to tell you things. And again, I'm sure you've seen it. A lot of the information that you get out of a consultation isn't by you saying, is your dog doing this? Have you seen that? Tell me about. It's in the chit-chat that goes on. And yeah. if you have got a client who is comfortable with the chit-chat, you know, you'd be talking away and they'll throw something in there, you know, like I've got problems with rats at the moment. Nothing to do with the consult. There's one of the things that we need to have a look at. And you do get to know the animals as well. I know that we see a lot of animals through our consult tables, but you do get to know the animals. And one of the things that I used to use a lot to determine what was going on with the animal was actually its behavior, how, how it reacted to me, how it reacted to the environment, 
how what it was looking at. And you can actually pick up because you know the animal you can pick up these little subtle things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, because a lot of the time there's an element of stress in that yeah. dog or cat that's coming to see you. So they're not behaving like they do at home and they might yeah. be brighter because those endorphins are flowing. But even yeah. then they still are going to be subjectively more dull than when you've seen them for their vaccination, for example, and they've been nervous, but still a lot brighter. And you're absolutely right. Those throwaway comments are, are so valuable and also help you assess how, you know, serious an issue might be because one person's, oh yeah, they're bleeding out, they're bleeding to death is, you know, a little bit of a drop of blood from a cut nail. Whereas the farmer who goes, oh yeah, it's got a little bit of a wound, but she'll be all right kind of thing. And it's, you know, major surgery that that individual needs yeah. on an emergency basis. Yeah. So, you know, there's that. What I also wonder in a lot of cases and, and maybe not so much where we are in the world, but a lot of vets are worried about litigation and they're worried about being sued and paranoid and scared of making a mistake, you know, which yeah. is going to happen because we're all humans. And I'm sure you've got stories of, you know, mistakes you've made and I've got mine as well. But that leads to kind of a practice of defensive medicine where every test gets, you know, ordered. And that has its own impact on care as well, doesn't it? Oh, exactly. And I was actually going to mention that because that's something that I really see with the younger vets when they're coming through the clinic. You know, you get a cat in with a simple condition, something that they can diagnose just looking at it grossly. And because of their concern of either litigation or of the vet council or the the governing veterinary body taking, goodness, their licence off them, which, to be fair, very, very, very seldom happens. I mean, you've got to be stealing the heroin out of the, the <laughs> whatever out of the safe to get that sort of thing. You know, it's I have seen a cat which comes in with a cat bite abscess, and it's a simple, straightforward cat bite abscess. And instead of treating it in the usual manner, you know, they have got full blood screens and X-rays done on it, and the client walks out the door with a thousand dollar bill for something that didn't need it at all. And the, the reason that they've done that is simply because the vet, want, well, it's probably one of my hobby horses, is what they have been taught is gold standard and they have to do at vet school. And yeah. that's not the real world because you've got to remember that it's actually not you that's paying the bill. You know, I think yeah. this sort of goes back to something that we should actually mention too is I've always worked under the philosophy that Clients don't know the difference between a good and a bad vet technically. What they know is the, the personability, the friendliness of the yeah. vet. So one of the things that I always tried to do and I always tried to get my young vets to do was to actually be sociable to the clients and to and to be nice to them. You know, drop this big clinical facade. You, you don't need to be aloof from the clients. You know, they are probably, well, not probably, they are definitely better at their job than you are at your job. Get off your high horse and, you know, just talk to them and talk yeah. to them in a language that they can understand too. Don't go throwing the big words in there. If it's stuffed, say it's stuffed. Don't go and um, put cotton yeah. wool around yeah. everything. Yeah. I think one of the big joys that I find in the work that we do is actually the relationships that you build with the clients. 
you know, working with the animals is great and making them better is fantastic and doing the surgeries is, you know, really enjoyable. But actually it's those relationships. Actually, when we were in lockdown, I struggled with that, not having that face-to-face communication, not being able to pick up on all of those non-verbal cues, which you hear are so important about, but actually until you don't get them, you don't necessarily realise how much communication does happen on a non-verbal um, basis. So that's certainly my philosophy, I guess, and my joy in the practice. And a lot of people don't share that view because they were actually loving the fact that you know the pet parents weren't in with them and they could you know kind of look things up in the book and not feel the pressure maybe of having to come up with that decision but yeah it all highlights you know just how important that relationship is and i think you're right you know if the pet owner knows the vet they know their approach then they can be confident in what they're being told and the vet can be confident to you know maybe tell it like it is or say what the best option is because it's it's almost it's easy to practice gold standard medicine well it, it, it's not easy but there's a, a set of steps for each thing that we could do it's going to cost thousands of dollars and that's not the reality for a lot of people and actually for me the art of being a vet is to work with limitations and to find out what's best for the individual which is going to vary very differently for the same condition Exactly, because this comes back to the old art of veterinary science. You know, I, I am old enough to still appreciate the art of, of veterinary science and comes down, I think, the terms prescriptive medicine, I think. I don't yeah. know. I th- that's what I'm calling it anyway. A lot of it is actually, it's, it's not intuition. It's, you just know. It's the second sense that comes out of a lot of experience too, I think, because one of the things that I hear a lot of vets saying is that they actually don't like doing vaccinations because they're doing the same old, same old, same old. I love doing vaccinations, one, because there's not normally a lot of stress involved in it and you can have a really good yarn. But the main thing is that you are seeing your animals, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 vaccinations a day, however many you're doing. Every one of those, you are examining a normal animal when you get the non-normal animal come through, because you've seen so many normals, it's so much easier to pick that up. It's different. There's something not right with this animal, which I find very, very handy. Yeah. And I also think if you've got a relationship with the client, when we're then switching to a more preventative mindset, it's actually easier maybe to make that recommendation that a little bit of weight needs to be lost because you know how to do it in a way that's not going to offend them and it's going to keep them on board and so actually have action taken or recommending that scale and polish rather than leaving it until the mouth is an absolute horrendous sewer pit and you're you're pulling out 20 teeth so i think that's easier and also i think the i would like to think anyway that your client is going to take more notice of what you're saying because they know how you work and they know that you've got their pet's best interest at heart. So actually the impact that we can have then becomes a lot more um, for a lot less money. Exactly. You know, I think probably another thing that I see that goes on with clients as they're coming in is the expectation as to what is going to be done. And this is where I directly poke my finger at a lot of these veterinary programs that are on television, where you've got I'm not going to point out any particular vet programs, but, you know, there are these programs where there are these sort of a million dollar titanium implants getting put in animals. And, you know, even a lot of the the run of the mill general practice kind of programs where the animal comes in, it's sick, the vet does something amazing, 
the animal walks out and it's fine. What they don't tell you is what went on in the middle in there. And the big part that they don't tell you is what it cost. There is a lot of expectation, I think, that anything that comes in can be fixed. And to be fair, most things that come in, you've got a reasonable chance of getting them right for money. It's all going to cost. The hardware that goes into orthopedics is horrendous. It's probably 80% of the whole thing. I mean, yeah, yeah. You can't do it cheaply because, you know, you take away the professional fee, if you like the fee that the vet is charging and you've still got a multi-thousand dollar bill. That's actually, you know, the the, the equipment and the anesthetic is the majority of the price there. I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, yeah, you watch these and I'll be careful not to name any names as well. But yeah, you get that potted history of, yeah, sick one day, surgery the next day, home the day after. No money has changed hands. There's been no complications and every animal has a happy outcome. But, you know, unfortunately that isn't the case. You do get complications. Some take longer. Some need second surgeries. Some, you know, have unfortunately, you know, not optimal outcomes, but we don't see, yeah, any of those things. To be honest, I don't watch any of these programs because they just annoy me and I end up shouting at the telly. Yeah, I have to admit the same thing. And then I'm sort of there saying, no, don't be dramatic about that because this is what's wrong with it. But yeah, good, mate, good yeah. telly. Now, I think there's probably a few other things. I know it wasn't what we actually set out to talk about, but if you look at the pressures that young vets in particular are under, I think you might have done a podcast at some stage on suicide. I know I did one a yeah. few months yeah. ago. It's hard work being a vet and a vet nurse. And People tend to be quite quick at throwing the borax at vets if things don't go quite right. And there's a few reasons for that, I think. There is the television programs. Social media is the big one. People, keyboard warriors in a a way. It's a beast and there's no comeback, isn't it? People can write a complaint and they write their side how they perceived things, which is often... You know, I've never thankfully been at the receiving end, but I've certainly known people and the facts as stated and social media were nothing like the actual facts, but the vets then got no, they can't jump on and say, well, actually, hang on a minute. This is what we discussed and this is what happened Yeah, because they're just not allowed because of client confidentiality. Yeah, exactly. And that leads on to the fact that suicide and veterinarians is the highest of any profession, which is really really sad. You know, I mean, your listeners may have seen MV, not one more vet, on yeah. their veterinary professional friends' Facebook and Instagram profile pictures. It, it's just awful. Yeah. And that's certainly something that yeah, anyone who's on any of my social platforms yeah, will have seen as, as well, because mm-hmm. it's, really, it's really important. And I don't want to give the impression then that it's all the client's fault for that, and they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't complain if they think there's something that hasn't been done as it should have been, then absolutely. But there are appropriate channels to do that, you know, as fully functional adults in society rather than just mudslinging, I guess. So people should be comfortable. And it's not just, it's a multifaceted thing, I think, within the industry. Um, there's lots of, you know, reasons why there's that tragic statistic. And I guess actually one thing I did meant to kind of mean to say when we're talking about how veterinary medicine has changed is actually the student loan as well. You know, if I think when I came out of university, so I've been in practice 15 years now, I think I had about £18,000 give or take student loan. Whereas now I hear that UK graduates are coming out with eighty to £100,000. And in the US, it is, you know, two dollars to $300,000 is not an unusual amount. To be honest, I'm not sure what it is in New Zealand at the moment, but those are huge numbers. And, you know, how people are paying that back 
in any time when they've got mortgages and kids and families and you know knowing what they earn it's um you know it's no wonder there's an element of stress there as well fantastic well brian i think we could talk you know there's a whole load of different aspects that we've discovered and it's you know it's great to dive into this with you you mentioned and we mentioned at the beginning your podcast would you like to tell us a little bit about that and obviously i'll put all the links in the in the show notes to that because it's definitely something that you know if you're interested in listening to this today then you should definitely jump and and check out brian's show as well that would be great. Well, I've been going for a large number of years, I think 14, 16 years or something. The The podcast is called The Vet Podcast. So it's all one word, V-E-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. So if you look at it on any of the social platforms, you'll find it. Listen to it through whatever podcast player you're using. So it's I try and produce one every two or three weeks, produce a podcast. It's pretty across the board as to who it's aimed at. It's not technical as far as being aimed directly at veterinarians or vet techs. It tends to be sort of around the edges a wee bit where it's mainly interviews. I interviewed last week the podcast up just in in the last day or so, talking to a veterinarian from Spain who specialises in bees. So who knew there was such a thing as a bee vet? (laughs) There's been some really diverse things a guy called Jim White. Uh, Jim White is Arthur White's son. Now, Arthur White might ring a bell to some veterinary people. Arthur White was the pseudonym of James Herriot. So it was interesting you mentioned James Herriot before. So <laughs> I had, it was the 50th anniversary, I think, of the closing of the practice or, I don't know, there was some anniversary involved in it. So we had a, a good conversation with, with Jim to talking to vets or a vet nurse in Omar or somewhere in the, you know, somewhere in Arabia, who was a nurse in one of these big compounds over there. And it was a discussion on people buying pets from the zooks, from the right. stalls yeah. over there and the problems that they had. So it's very, very diverse. We've talked to pet nutritionalists. So if people want to have a listen, just chase it up. Just search vet podcast, all one word. Just Google it or in, in your player and you will find us. And um, I'm much the same as you. We love subscriptions. Jump on in. <laughs> subscriptions, absolutely. Subscribe, like, share, all of the the, yeah. the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I love the podcasting f- medium as well because I listen to podcasts on my way into work and you get a much deeper dive than you do with any other uh, you know, information, you know, be that a blog or a video, you know, the podcast, it allows us to talk about things that people maybe didn't even know that you needed to know. So I think, you know, much like, like our conversation today, I think it'd be very difficult to deliver this in something that was Google search friendly because it's not what people are looking for, but actually the the impact of knowing that okay, well, we need to have a good relationship with our vets. So, you know, let's stick to the ta- the same vet rather than chopping and changing just because you're saving $2 by going, you know, to the, the clinic in the other town. Well, you're probably spending that in petrol. You know, things like that actually can make such a huge difference. So, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a, a pleasure talking to you. We maybe have to do one of these in person, seeing um, we should take advantage of the fact that two podcasters living very closely together. We're in the same town. Exactly. Exactly. I might, I might give you the opportunity now because I'm going to steal this and um, put it up as my podcast. How, how would you like to announce yourself to the Vet Podcast listeners? Okay. So 
Vet podcast listeners. So yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. So you can find me at the Call the Vet show. So yeah, again, search on your podcasting app. I'm sure there'll be links in the show notes and also ourpetshealth.com, which is kind of my online home where I've got all my blog posts and videos and, and podcasts as well. So yeah, lovely. It'll be great to, to share everybody. And, and yeah, thanks for the conversation today, Brian. Great. It's been an absolute pleasure, Alex. And me popping up in other podcasts doesn't finish here. Recently, I've also chatted to Julie South, producer of Claws, Paws and Wet Noses, another New Zealand-based podcast which discusses topics which matter to vets. She has produced a couple of podcasts from our chat on podcasting, especially as it relates to veterinary practice. Have a listen. Search for Claws, Paws and Wet Noses in your normal podcast player. And that's it for another episode of the Vet Podcast. All of our links are in one place at beacons.ai slash vetpodcast. That is B-E-A-C-O-N-S dot A-I slash vetpodcast. And while you're there, don't forget to buy us a coffee. On behalf of me, Brian Greger, and everybody else involved in the making of this podcast, thanks for listening and we'll catch you again soon.